At Journey Beyond Divorce, we understand that navigating through the emotional tsunami of separation and divorce is one of the hardest journeys you'll take. And we know that once the initial fear and pain begins to pass, a whole new storm of confusion, uncertainty, and self-doubt can surface. Journey Beyond Divorce can help you identify and clarify where you're feeling stuck and what steps you need to move forward, even if they're just baby steps. We guide you with practical, tangible support that you can start implementing right away. Our team of experienced divorce coaches is ready to help you. Listen through the show because we have a gift just for you. It'll help you navigate your divorce with more calm and confidence. You're listening to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast with Karen McMahon. We invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience. Heal your heart while refining your character and enable you to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. Even though I've always been such a strong person, I've become very codependent with my partner over 20 years. I, I was When I met him, I was extremely wealthy, very, very high-flying photographer, the best-paid photographer in Europe. I was traveling all over the world. I was on TV. I was very, very big in my field, basically. And um, I gave all that up gradually over 20 years because it didn't suit um, I'll say our lifestyle, but it didn't suit his lifestyle really. And um, I, I, I didn't see the red flags, you know, I didn't see it. Welcome to Voices of Celebration. This series is designed to inspire and encourage you as we share real life experiences of former Journey Beyond Divorce clients who invested in their personal growth through divorce and emerged a better version of themselves with a more rewarding post-divorce life. Welcome to another episode of Voices of Celebration. Today I have one of my favorite clients with me, and she's from the other side of the pond. Welcome, Annabelle. Hello. I'm so glad that you um, are joining me and willing to share your story with our listeners. That's great. It's my pleasure. So let's dive right in. Uh, Annabelle came to me uh, last September, September of 2019, about a year and a half ago, and has had, in um, my experience, uh, one of the more uh, powerful, uh, transformative experiences, and largely, Annabelle, because you rolled up your sleeves and, and boldly and courageously swam in uh, the sea of uh, emotional turmoil. And so I would love if you could maybe start by sharing uh, with our listeners um, just that that early stage for you, um, how it began and where you were when you reached out. Okay, yeah, it was a a huge shock to me in my life to suddenly um, find that I was no longer in my relationship, but my partner wanted to end it um, after we'd been trying so hard to make it work. We'd been having counselling together. Um, he'd had some issues from childhood that we didn't know about, and that had caused a massive uh, problem for him, which I was then really helping him with for about a year before. And never in my wildest dreams did I think that it would end up with a splitting up. 
And one day he just came into me and said, I've decided I want space. And I said, what do you mean you want space? And he said, I said, what do you mean forever? And he said, yes. And it was the biggest shock of my life. Absolutely terrifying. I was just thrown into complete turmoil. The biggest fear in my life had happened to me. Um, and I was totally alone. And the biggest problem for me was that I was going to be 60 the following year. I was really looking forward to being 60. I decided I was living till I'm 110. So to me, 60 wasn't a problem. And all of a sudden, 60 was the biggest problem in my life because I was suddenly facing having no home of my own, no job, uh, because I'd given up my career years ago to be with my partner because I loved him so much. And um, I gave up my career to be with him, to travel the world. And suddenly, I'm out on my ear at 60 with nothing because unfortunately, in the UK, if you haven't been married... And I've been with him for 20 years. But if you're not actually legally married, you get absolutely nothing. You're entitled to zero. And so I was facing zero. And it was the, I just wanted to kill myself. It was the biggest fright of my life. Absolutely horrible. And I um, was Googling, you know, typical things like what do you do, divorced at 60, all this sort of stuff, um, even though it wasn't technically divorced, but that's what kind of comes up. And I found your website and it just resonated with me totally. It was amazing. Everything you said was like, that's me, that's me, that's me. And I just wanted more and more and more of what you have. And that's how we got connected. You know? Yeah. And so that early stage, I'm hearing um, both the heartbreak and the uncertainty of, of the future just had you quite overwhelmed. Oh, completely. I've never felt fear like it. It was the biggest fear of my life. I didn't know what I was going to do. I lost so much weight. I couldn't sleep. I would wake up thinking, oh, my God, this is actually real. This is actually happening to me. What am I going to do? And even though I've always been such a strong person, I've become very codependent with my partner over 20 years. I, I was When I met him, I was extremely wealthy, very, very high-flying photographer, the best-paid photographer in Europe. I was traveling all over the world. I was on TV. I was very, very big in my field, basically. And um, I gave all that up gradually over 20 years because it didn't suit um, I'll say our lifestyle, but it doesn't suit his lifestyle really. And um, I, I, I didn't see the red flags, you know, I didn't see it. And so when I went through this, of course, I went through a period of completely beating myself up. How could I be so stupid? How could I possibly have done what I did when I was so successful, so confident? How did I turn into this codependent person who was utterly independent when I met him? And how could I have been such an idiot not to see that this could happen? You know, it was obvious when you looked back. And I was furious with myself. And that was one of the hardest things for me was learning uh, to stop beating myself up about it. You know, and obviously that's where you came in big time. And I'll never forget, you, I wrote you an email explaining how I was feeling. And you said, well, you just need to stop beating yourself up. You need to look at this email, all the places where you're beating yourself up. I want you to look at them now. And I want you to tell me the first one you see. And I looked at the email and I couldn't see any. And I remember saying to you, uh, uh, could you give me a clue? And I remember. You, yeah, and you, you pointed out, well, look at this one. I'll give you this example. And all of a sudden, the page lit up with red circles. And I just saw all the, I thought, oh, my God, that is what I'm doing. I'm completely beating myself up. I'm being so horrible to myself. And I, I just didn't realize I was doing that until you point, you had to literally point one out to me for me to see what I was doing. I mean, how crazy is that? But, you know, that's where I was. But And I think so many people listening are going to very much relate to that, both <clears throat> The self-judgment and the self-condemnation that come with, especially if you've been in a long-term relationship. And then what happens is the cover story is gone and we start seeing what was real. And that's when we all pick up the bat and start beating the heck out of ourselves. Absolutely, um, you do. Yeah. 
And you think, why couldn't I have fixed this? Why didn't I fix it? I've fixed everything else. Why couldn't I fix that? And so then you blame yourself for not being able to fix it. And you just blame yourself for everything. And you just become worthless. And you think, I'm just worthless. And I'm 60. Oh, my God, I'm on the slag heap now. How am I going to ever get somebody else? How am I ever going to move on? How am I going to start working again at this age when I've given up my entire career? It, this is crazy. And that's how it felt. Yeah. And, and, and you can, even as you're speaking, it's like one story and one question and one fear after the other, it makes sense that you're drowning. You're drowning in fear and emotions and upset and, uh, and especially the uncertainty. And you, in a situation where you actually experienced being a really successful professional and now feeling like you were starting all over again and that you didn't even know how, I remember you saying. No, completely. You know, and it wasn't, it's not, my profession was not the profession you could start over in again because photography kind of went down the pan a while back, you know, when everybody got an iPhone. So, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing I could do that I, how I used to do it. So it was just this, I would say it was absolute terror. I was absolutely terrified. I didn't know what to do. I was so scared. I mean, I got to a point where, you know, I didn't go out anywhere. I didn't spend any money. I, I took a water bottle with me everywhere so that I couldn't go to a cafe because I couldn't afford a coffee and things like that. That's how I felt. And I'd gone from, we had an, a, an amazing lifestyle, you know what I mean, which I'd helped create, you know, the two of us together, our brains had worked together and made this, created an amazing lifestyle. You know, we, we had everything. And suddenly to have that, to go I mean, it's not, the money doesn't bother me. It's just that that's how I'd lived. And suddenly I was living, I can't afford a cup of coffee. I, I can't have that. I'll just drink water. I don't need that coffee. I lost so much weight. It was unbelievable, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And then the other piece that you're bringing up is that, um, that you were very independent. And yet, as you look back on your relationship, you saw a lot of codependence. And can you just share a little bit about what, what you noticed and 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 how that kind of unfolded for you yeah i think i'd become very very part of his life i mean it was all all his life was my life i did everything that he wanted me to do and so it became that i put him first all the time and it was almost like i spent my whole life waiting for him to make the decisions waiting to decide where we were going if i sort of said oh i'd really like to go out for a walk tonight He'd, and he'd say, oh, I don't want to go for a walk. Let's watch, net, watch, let's watch Netflix. And I'd think, oh, okay, then we'll watch Netflix. I mean, how did I do that? You know, instead of, I should have just gone for a walk myself. But I didn't. I would do what he wanted me to do all the time. And um, I did it willingly. I wanted to do it too because he wanted to do it. And I, I know what it was now. It was the, it was the feeling that I, I so wanted to make him love me all the time, which sounds so pathetic to me now, I can't believe it, that I would do anything to get that love back, you know, and in the end, I just pushed it away, you know? Well, um, and, and there's always the root of that, too. Like, we, each of us who find ourselves in codependent relationships, um, it's, it's, it's not like a fault thing. It's actually... We're designed that way. And, and do you feel comfortable sharing a little bit of your aha awareness of where your um, uh, fear of abandonment came from that led oh, yeah, to dependence? Yeah, that's, a, that's one thing you made me realize because I, I've always known I've had uh, trauma issues with my father who died at the eight, when I was seven. I was seven. He was 36. And that has caused a lot of um, insecurity for me and things like that all through my, throughout my life. But I remember you saying to me one day um, that 
it's about abandonment. And I said, well, how on earth did he abandon me? He died. It wasn't his fault. You know, he got cancer and died within six months. How was that abandoning me? And you made me realise that it is abandoned because anything like that that happens to a small child, if you feel abandoned, that is almost like death to you. You're going to die because there's going to be nobody to look after you. And that's what happened to me, you know, and... Also, so I was kind of abandoned by my father, the fact that he died, but also by my mother, because she couldn't cope with it with three small children. When she was 31, she had three small children. I was the oldest. And um, that is that was so shocking, that abandonment. And I, and I think that that was the fear that was in me when I was living with my partner, that he would abandon me. Therefore, I had to make him love me more. And I see that now. But it was all subliminal. It wasn't conscious, you know. And um, it was... I learned a lot. Um, you said to me one day, I remember it was a Friday, and you said to me, uh, you asked me questions about my father. And I thought, you said to me, um, what do you remember about your father? And I said two things. I remembered two things, very trivial things. And you said, I think you need to know more about your father. And I said, because I, he said, she said, you said, I think that's where these abandonment issues come from. You need to find out more about your father. And I said, well, how am I going to do that? He's dead. You know, how am I going to do that? And you said, well, can you ask your mother? And I was like, no, not really. Uh, there's nobody I can ask about him. And you, you just said, I just feel you need to know more about your father. And I'm just going to leave that with you. I remember using exact words on the Friday. And four days later, literally four days later, my aunt is moving house. And she calls me up and says, oh, I found a box of letters that your father wrote to his mother when he was in the war. Would you like them? And I was like, what? Four days after, where's this come from? It was just really bizarre. And so I went and I got this box of letters. And those letters, I'm so grateful for them. They completely changed my life. And there were 200 letters in there, which I just thought would be, you know, hello, mom, I'm doing this. But they weren't. They were all about his life. And, and going through those 200 letters basically gave me everything I needed to know about my father. And I now know all sorts of things. It was like he was talking to me in this terrible time in my life because I thought, well, why haven't I seen these letters before? And Suddenly, I think it was because I felt that he needed to be with me. He wasn't abandoning me. And this sounds really cuckoo. And I am the sort of person who thinks all that sort of stuff is really woo-woo. Not anymore, <laughs> right? Because the strangest things happened through reading those letters, so much so that I'm actually probably going to write a book about it. Because so many weird things happened. Like, um, shall I just give you an example? Yes, please. So, so for example, um, I was... Uh, we were in lockdown last year when this was happening. And basically, um, I felt that those letters were almost him sending a message to me saying, hey, I'm stuck in Egypt in this heat of this desert, which is awful. I'm suffering. I don't want to be here. I'm in the army. I want to be back home where you are. You can cope with this. You can deal with, I've got to deal with this. You can deal with what you're going through in lockdown. And I thought, you're right. I can deal with it because you dealt with it. So therefore, I'm going to take a different attitude and I'm going to read these letters and I'm going to understand what you're trying to tell me which sounds crazy, but it's true. And so one day, it was the day that we were allowed to go out last year, because in England, we were really seriously locked down and we weren't even allowed to drive our cars. And then one day we were allowed to drive our car. And I decided, I just plucked something out of the air. I thought, I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go somewhere in the Lake District where I live, this beautiful area. And I'm going to go while there's no tourists here. And I'm going to go and look at something beautiful. And I'm going to go to Coniston. There's a town called Coniston. I don't know why, but this just came into my head, this word Coniston. And this is relevant because when I went out fabulous day in Coniston, came back and I was in such, on such a high, I decided to read some of my father's letters. So I picked up the first letter and in that letter he said, hey, mom, I went to the cinema last night and I saw this film, movie as you would call it, um, and uh, in it was Coniston in the Lake District. And I was like, 
what? How is that possible? I have just picked Coniston out of my head and I go to Coniston, I come back and he writes it in a letter. And there was loads of these things. It happened day after day after day. I remember you sharing one Something I would do that day and I'd come back and read a letter and it would be confirmed in it. And I started to think, this is kind of a message that's telling me that I'm on the right track and that all is going to be okay. And I started to believe that if I just surrendered and let go and stopped trying to control everything in my life, stopped trying to control where I was going to get money from, where I was going to live, what was going to happen to me, I just he made me believe that I was safe and that he was going to help me. And, and I, want to, I want to slow you down because I want to kind of go back a little bit. No, that's perfect. And yet this piece that you're talking about now, this surrender piece, um, Early on when we were talking and you were going through just that really uh, painful up and down grieving process, uh, you also, um, we talked about The Untethered Soul and you were reading that book. And that's by Michael Singer, for those of you who haven't heard me refer to it before. And then you actually told me about a second book that he had written that I was unaware of which was the surrender experiment. And I'm wondering, because your, 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 your story is actually speaking about this, um, uh, this synchronicity and this um, unfolding that happened after you did this earlier work. So can we just talk a little bit about what that was like for you, listening to the voices in your head and then taking that step into trying to surrender in the beginning? Yes, absolutely. Because when I was, I was told by a friend of mine, she said to me one day, she'd been helping me. She lives, we, I, live in, I lived in Key West for six months of the year. So I lived in Key West for six months and I lived for here, in here for six months. And so I split up in the August and in the November, I went to Key West. So my friend out there really helped me to stop beating myself up, learn to deal with things. And she said to me, I think you're ready, ready for the untethered soul. And I said, what's the untethered soul? So she gave me this book and I read this book and I have to say, hand on heart, it completely changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. Suddenly I thought there's another way. There's another way to do this. And I read the surrender experiment, which is all about surrendering, obviously. And I always used to think, oh, of course, it's a much easier life if you just surrender because you're basically not being responsible for anything. So, of course, it's going to be easier. But, you know, that's how I felt. But actually, it was. It really, really was. And and I was fortunate enough to meet Michael Singer by a very weird series of events that happened in Key West. I ended up going to see him. And again, it it was just before lockdown, just as COVID hit in Florida. And I thought, well, they're not going to let me in because this COVID thing is happening. They're not going to let me in. Um, so I wrote them an email to say, um, is it okay if I come to you? Are you still doing these things? Well, I didn't get a reply. Anyway, when I get up there and they said, where are you from? And I said, England. They said, why are you here? We, wrote, we told you not to come when you wrote the email. And I said, I didn't get that email. And so the girl who told me, she, said, she looked in her file. She sent me it again. She said, this is the email. So I then got, had her name. So I checked her name out in my email system and there was no email there. It wasn't in the junk. It wasn't anywhere. And so I, she said, oh, well, maybe you're meant to be here. And it basically changed my life again, being there and being in that room with Michael Singer and realizing that everything he said in his book was completely true. And um, when I got back home, the email was in my email. I'm telling you now, it was not there. I searched for it everywhere. And I'm just like, it was just so meant to be. And I thought, okay. That's one of the first signs. And I started listening to things like that that would happen. Things that happened to me, I'd think, okay, why has that happened? Whereas before, I would have just ignored it. 
Whereas and now, so I, I want to just tell the listeners, like the, the crib notes version of the surrender experiment is really an invitation to be open to whatever is presented to us. And, yeah. and what Michael Singer talks about is that our monkey mind goes, there's no way I'm doing that. That's just ridiculous. I, you know, and, and we shut down possibility. And so his surrender experiment is truly a book of him surrendering for 50 years and inviting us to, um, notice the monkey mind, notice the resistance, notice the judgment, and then put it aside and ask, well, what if this is meant to be? And, and Annabelle, you just, you walk that, um, straight through into meeting your dad. Like you walked that through your time Absolutely. in the States. And then, and then when you were back in England and, all of this during lockdown and all of this during, you know, loneliness and uncertainty and fear. And so, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to give that context to our listeners. So you went, you heard Michael Singer, you read the two books. Uh, what impact did that work um, have on you? It basically taught me to let go. I, I, I mean, and I would resist that all the time. And then suddenly I'd think, oh, hang on a minute. Let's just listen to Michael Singer. What would Michael Singer say? And I have to say, I've read chapter eight of his book about 50, 60 times. Because whenever I had any, it's called letting go of fear, that chapter. And whenever I had fear in me, something would happen. My partner would say something and it would put, you know, over the phone or an email, it would put this fear back into me again. And I'd be like, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And I thought, you read chapter eight. And I'd pick up chapter eight. And by the time I got through like three pages, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I've got to do. I have to let go of fear. Because in it, he says, what if there was no fear? If What if you did ha didn't have any fear? Then what does life look like? And it changes everything. Because you realize that what you're feeling is fear. And if you say to yourself, okay, there is no fear. So what if I have no fear? How will I feel? You feel differently about things. And it just helps you. And there was all these little things that just helped bit by bit. And I just, things would happen. Feathers would land at my feet and crazy things like this that, you know, sounds mad and you need the whole context. But I'd be like, oh, right, okay. And it was almost as if somebody was listening and looking out for me the whole time. And all I had to do was just surrender to it. And funnily enough, things that I would think, I'm just not going to reply to that email. I'm just going to see what happens. And suddenly something would come into my inbox that would be like, wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Whereas before I'd reacted straight back on my computer and controlled it all, you know, but this time I didn't. I'd just sit back and listen and think and it would just naturally come. Calming the chaos of divorce begins with quieting your mind and getting clear on what you want and how to get it. That's why we created the Divorce Survival Kit. It's an easy to digest guide with five essential tips that help transform your suffering into valuable insights and your confusion into effective action. So go to DivorceRecoveryLifeline.com and grab your Divorce Survival Kit today. I remember um, during your second, uh, maybe the second half of your time in Key West, uh, your housing was also uncertain, and uh, it was, it, as we spoke every other week, it would be like, I don't know where I'm going to be, and then all of a sudden an invitation oh, right. would open I up, and like one after another, 
that as you created that space and you just yes. sat in trust that, okay, well, I'll just see. And sometimes it was a little bit 12th hour for you as well. It was amazing. I remember, you know, asking people, do you have somewhere I can stay? Because I needed to stay for another six weeks or something. And I had nowhere to live. And I think I lived in five different houses in two or three weeks. I can't remember. It was it was amazing. And I remember one house and it just wasn't working out. This girl was saying to me, all this other girl's coming to live in it. And if she doesn't live in it, then you can have it. But I kept ringing her and saying, is she coming to live in it? I don't know. She hasn't called me yet. I don't know. And I'm like trying to control the whole thing. And in the end, I thought, you know what? You just have to let go of this house. It's not working. It's not working. And as Michael Singer says, you let go of something, you allow space to allow something else in. And I tell you, right, I literally, she said, she said, where do, I said, I'm not going to stay in this house. I'm going to try and find something else. Where do I put the key? So she said, there's a bike on the porch. Put the key in the pocket of the bike, in like the bag of the bike. So I literally put the key in the bag of the bike, said goodbye to that house, walked out of the gate, and I got a text at that moment as I walked out, as I closed the gate, literally closed the gate, a text comes through. I look at my phone and a friend of mine said, hey, by the way, you can have my guest cottage if you want. And I was like, what? So it, physically, I had put the key in the bag, locked the gate, and then it came in. And it was all, and I laughed because it was almost like Michael Singer saying, I told you, you've got to leave this one to open the space for the next thing. And so that taught me to practice that. And it was like I got house after house after house that just worked out. Yeah, and I think that that's something we can have temporary amnesia about that, right? As soon as something yeah. happens that you want to grasp onto or hold onto, and maybe it was the conversation about what that settlement is going to look like or, you know, when lockdown was going to end or whatever it is. And so it's so powerful to have the experience that you can keep going back to. Exactly. And I think that's it. You know, I'll have my crying fits and I'll get all upset. And then all of a sudden I'll wake up and think, hang on a minute, you're trying to control things again. What are you doing? You're trying to control things. You're afraid again. So what if you're not afraid and you stop controlling things and you go make yourself a cup of tea and you just see what happens. And inevitably, the next day or whatever, something happens. And I'm just like, all right, okay. (laughs) And did you read the surrender experiment? That's exactly what happened to Michael Singer. And and fear always leads to a grasping and a trying to control. And so yeah. really the, the challenge is to, to let go of the fear and to trust that whatever unfolds is what's supposed to unfold. But if we control it, then we're not necessarily getting what's been in, what we've been invited to. And so it's, it's, it's a little bit heady and yet, you have such beautiful stories about your real life experience in that. Um, I also think, just to, say, just to elaborate on what you're saying there as well, is that it's that feeling as well. It's not just trusting it. It's just knowing it's going to be okay. If you just trust it, actually, it's going to be okay. And that, I think, I mean, if you're a little girl and your mom said to you, you know, hey, don't worry, it's going to be okay, you'd believe her, wouldn't you? You know, you'd believe her, it's going to be okay. And it's almost like you're saying that to yourself. You're saying, hey, it's okay, you're going to be okay. And so far, I've just found out I've been more than okay. Amazing. So um, there's two things I'd really like you to talk a little bit about. One is um, uh, I want to go back to that self-judgment a little bit because I think so many people going through divorce, especially, I think especially if you're the one who was left, but having been the one who left, I had plenty of self-judgment too. Um, You and I worked on that a bit, and and I remember you um, noticing that voice in your head, and even you you had such interesting uh, 
approaches to things, Annabelle. I remember you gave your voice a name. Actually, you gave both the, the ju judgmental voice a name and the encouraging voice a name. Can you just share with our listeners? Because I think some people might adopt that. It's so, it's so fun oh, it, and cool. And it really worked. Yeah. One, one day, I, you know, I was just thinking, I was getting really cross with myself and I'm, I'm thinking, well, why are you beating yourself up? Who is this person inside you that is beating yourself up all the time? And so I thought, right, I'm going to call her Sally. Okay. So I'm going to recognize that when Sally comes on the scene, that's Sally, who is just trying to get some attention. She's trying, you know, the sort of voice that keeps saying, oh, you better not do that. You know, if you go and do that, that's going to be really dangerous. That's a really stupid thing to do. Why are you going to do that? You want Jonah to do that. You know, you're, you're scared of doing things like that. Don't go do that. It's scary. And that would be Sally. And I remember, um, I think texting you, or I, think I went to a cafe and I, and I decided that it was a nice part of me was going to be called Esmeralda, right? The one who was nice to me, the person who was always nice. And you can do anything you want. You're great. You're fabulous. You're really nice. You can do all of these things. And there's Sally and Esmeralda at each other the whole time we probably all resonate with that you know oh you can't do that yes you can no you can't you know what if that happens and so I, I decided to take myself off to a cafe one day stop being so miserable and I thought I'm just going to go and sit in this cafe and I'm going to um, have a cup of tea and um, I'm going to take Esmeralda with me and we're going to have a nice day out and Sally can be is chained up outside on the railings because she's spitting feathers at us outside and she's being really horrible until she behaves she's staying out there tied up with my bike and um, Esmeralda and I were having a lovely time inside. And then, and it really worked and it made me feel really positive because I was almost picking up the bit that was being negative and sitting it out on the pavement like a naughty child and saying, if you don't behave, you're not coming in because there's no room for you in my head. I need to be in a nice place with Esmeralda. And then gradually I started to realise that this Sally that's sitting outside on the pavement is really upset and crying. And actually Sally, I realised, was the inner child in me in a way that was scared and frightened and she wasn't being nasty. She was just warning me about these things that might go wrong because they always went wrong before. So why wouldn't they go wrong now? So I'm just telling you that these things are going to go wrong and you need to know about them. Um, and you can understand that when you think of it like that. And I remember one day having this real feeling of giving her a hug and saying, hey, it's okay. You don't need to keep getting attention. You don't need to keep warning me about these things because I know those things can go wrong, but I'm going to be okay with that. And then I remember going to a yoga class one day and she was sitting outside, outside the doorway because I didn't want her in my yoga class. And I just I knew she was outside on the door. And then when I got outside later, I thought, come on, let's go out together and let's go and have a nice time. And we all had a hug. And it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But these, you, do, you go crazy there. You go bonkers in this situation and anything will help, you know. And, uh, but it really did help because gradually Sally became a nice part and those two melded together. And I never thought about them again. I was just happy with them. And, you know, what you're really describing is a healing and an integration. Like, I yes. think we all yeah. have inner child wounds and yeah. divorce um, because it's a breach of an intimate relationship and inner child wounds come from intimate relationship with our parents, that there's this yeah. opportunity to integrate our younger self and our mature self and and be whole again. And so I love the way you did that, like by giving them embodying them in a separate name and and I remember you saying like I could pick out Sally really quickly like once she had a name it was like that's Sally Sally's talking again and whatever you wanted to do about it and you know so. what was really funny that I didn't say was I did this before I read the Michael Singer book the untethered soul and I think on the very first page of the untethered soul he talks about this person that's talking in your brain all day yes. who is it who is talking and he calls her Sally and I was like that's spooky <laughs> 
That's funny. I do recall, I didn't recall Sally, but I do recall how funny it was as he described this separate being in our head. So, so you reached out and and we worked together for the better part of like a year and a quarter. Can you just talk a little bit about, um, about what um, the coaching experience was like for you and the impact that it had on this very colorful journey that you're describing to us? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, you just completely changed my life because, you know, I've had counseling in the past a long time ago, um, but it was nothing like this. this. You had this very sensible down-to-earth approach and you weren't afraid to say to me, hey, stop beating yourself up, look at this, you know, and, and you just gave me all that confidence. And I, I, it was as if every single time I talked to you, you put all my thoughts straight in my head. And what I, one of the things I absolutely loved was the notes that you took. I find that amazing that you can take notes at the same time as talking to me. I think that's incredible. It's an amazing <laughs> skill. And then you would send me those notes because after the session, I would be like, what did you say? Because your head is all fuzzy, isn't it? Because you're going through all this emotion and I'm, you know, spent a lot of time crying to you, you know. And then a couple of days later, I get these notes from you and it reminds me of what we said and where I am. And then the next time I had a session with you, I'd look at those notes and think, wow. That's where I was two weeks ago. Look at where I am now. And it really put you on track and made you, made, gave me the confidence to realize that I was really moving forward, you know. And it, it's a story and a narrative, isn't it, that's going along with you. And it helps you recognize where you're at and, and how far you've come. And I thought I found that fascinating. That was an amazing part of it. And I think that, you know, in your particular case, um, and in so many others, that narrative changes. And so it goes from the fear narrative and the heartbroken narrative to that finding yourself, right? And and trusting yourself and and even trusting the universe or God or whatever it is you believe in. And so as we went forward, what was so powerful was seeing um you emerge. It was like you, Annabelle was no longer a stranger to Annabelle. And and I think that piece going back to your dad was such a pivotal piece where you really had you said hundreds of letters to mm. actually get to know the man who brought you into the world and get to know him through his trial and tribulations while you were going through yours. And how, like, what would you say about how that helped you um, ground into who you are and where you are in your situation? I think there's no longer a part of me that's missing. I think that's what I would say, that all, there's been this part of me that's been missing for forever. And I suppose I've been searching for somebody who wouldn't abandon me all the time, but actually ending up with people that were emotionally unavailable, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I think it's just made me whole and complete somehow. I, I no longer blame anything on the fact I don't have a father, you know, and or that, well, of course, when I was seven, that's what happened to me. So all these reasons why I'm doing X, Y, and Z are all because of that, you know, and, and obviously they were, but I've made peace with it now. It, it's like, it, it it's like he's never been away and he's actually always been around. He's just been sitting there waiting for the moment when I really, really needed him. And then it's like coming in like Superman and being there. And, and that's made such a huge difference to me, you know, without you saying that to me, well, I mean, the letters, maybe they would have come, I don't know, but somehow they just arrived, didn't they? And it, and it, and 
the whole being in this lockdown situation, which has been painful for so many people and so awful. But actually, for me, it's been a huge, huge opportunity to be able to sit down with these letters, which if I'd been busy working and being out there and not being in the situation we've been, I don't think I'd have had time to read them. I'd have just thought, oh, yeah, there's some letters. I'll keep those. They'll be nice. You know, like some photo or trinket or something, you know. I mean, and that just speaks once again to surrender that, you know, uh, when we can believe that we're always exactly where we're supposed to be and that what's happening is happening um, for us and not to us and that there is there is there is an opportunity in it. There's an opportunity for self-reflection, for growth, for for healing, for whatever it is. And and. You know, I just want to acknowledge that through the year and a half that we worked together, you um, were so open-minded and hearted to every opportunity. And and I felt I had to be because I felt I had no choice. I felt I was I had my hands tied behind my back. I was trapped. I'd been thrown out as it looked. I um, thought I'd never be able to get on my feet again. I didn't know how I was going to get on my feet again. And to me, the only way was to listen to this because there were so many messages that kept coming through to me the whole time that it made me sit up and think, there's something in this because how come that's just happened? That's crazy. They can't all be coincidences. There just can't be so many coincidences. It was happening, you know, every day, every two or three days, whatever. Constantly, something else would come in and you can't call them coincidences. I don't know what it was, but it was just me letting go and surrendering. And the end outcome of that was in letting go and surrendering and not fighting the situation I was in. Suddenly, my partner wrote me an email deciding that it would be fair to offer me some money and a home. And I was, my head nearly fell on the table. It's just not what he would do. And I, I couldn't believe it. I, and I was like, you know, it wasn't just sitting waiting. It was helping myself believe that whatever was right was going to happen. And if it was right that I was going to live in a hole in the ground somewhere, then that's what was going to happen. You know what I mean? If I was going to be under a bridge on a sleeping bag, then that's what I was meant to be. But that isn't how it worked out, you know? It worked out how it was meant to be. And I'm just so grateful to to that. And it also helped me, as you can tell, I speak very fast. I'm very <laughs> out there the whole time, you know. And it, believe it or not, it really helped me calm down and think. I don't react in the same way anymore. I stop and I think and I think, okay, what's this about? Let's just sit down with that because that's interesting. Where's that come from in my life? Let's just sit down and see what's going to happen. And you know what? It's a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> it's really good fun accepting these gifts that keep coming in from somewhere, you know. Yeah, you've had an incredible journey. And um, my sense is as England begins to open up, um, you're, you're really entering it as a, a new woman and someone who knows Absolutely. yourself better and is more aligned with your authentic self. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, it hasn't, all, it hasn't been easy in plain sailing and all of a sudden somebody flicked a switch and it was all okay. I mean, one of the things we haven't mentioned is the grief. I mean, the grief that I've been through in the last 18 months was just awful. You know, there's been times when I, this sounds terrible, but it, I honestly believe it would have been easier if he died at times. Do you know what I mean? Because at least you'd have something to move on from. You'd know that he wasn't coming back. Whereas you spend your first six months thinking, how can I get him back? He's going to come back. This isn't happening. And then he gets a new girlfriend and that's like devastating. You know, whereas if and I'm, if, if he died, there wouldn't be a new girlfriend. There wouldn't be a replacement for me. Do you know what I mean? There wouldn't be all that hot hurt piling onto you as well, which is just oh, the most horrible feeling. And, and I remember you explaining the grief sometimes when I was so grief stricken, I didn't know what to do. And you said that it's like a huge wave and that you're 
falling in the sea and the waves are crashing all over you and you can't even stand up. And then gradually those waves reside and reside and they go calmer and calmer. And then you can breathe again. And then next time it happens again, crashing wave, but suddenly the calm waves come in quicker. And you just go through that. And you're so right because that's exactly what happened. The waves were massive in the beginning. And now a wave might come, like, it's like someone's just thrown a bucket of water at you from the side. And you think, Woo, what's that about? And then, you, then you, you think, and you've got three minutes of utter grief. And then you think, oh, get over it. You know, what are you, what are you frightened of? You've got the tools. You've got the things to ask yourself instead of just going into. And, and don't get me wrong, there are times I still dissolve into the floor, but not for long. Not well, for long, because it. I know what it is now. You know? And I think that's a that's a beautiful um, way for us to wrap up that for those of you listening who are in the early stages, um, had I said these things to you, Annabelle, a year and a half ago, you would have said, not me. That's that's just not the way it's going to be with me. And mm-hmm. and so we all start there. It's like the tunnel is long and dark and scary and painful. And that's not going to be my experience. And yet, you know, I'm here to tell you. Um, I've been doing this for a lot of years and anyone who's willing to do the work, they emerge from the grief. Um, they can see, um, the value, uh, that the grief invited into both the healing and refining. And, um, and then you get to emerge whole and healthy and really ready for the next chapter, um, of life. Absolutely, you do. I mean, right back at the beginning, you know, I thought my life was over, how it was not possible for anything to come better of this. How was I ever going to get through this? It wasn't possible. I was completely on my own. I'd never been on, on my own in my life. And I was, to- I didn't want to be on my own. Don't tell me I've got to be me and be better with myself and love myself and all this sort of stuff. I don't want to love myself. I hate myself because if I'd been good enough, I would have been good enough for him. And you beat yourself up about all this. And how can this possibly be true? But actually, after 18 months, I do love myself I, and I no longer need a man to complete me. That sounds a strange things to say, but I don't need anybody else to complete me. I am complete. And I now hope that, you know, I will love somebody else, but it will be on the terms of they, if we're both equal people, you know, and if you recognize that there's something wrong, there's a red flag or whatever, then they're not right for you. Whereas before I was clinging, you know, and I hear you saying that you are going to be able to love out of um, abundant self-love instead yeah. of out of need and Absolutely. emptiness. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful. Do you have um, any last words of uh, encouragement, wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners before we say goodbye? Yeah, the one thing I was thinking about was, I mean, I've been reading Michael Singer and then I went on to be reading Ram Das, who was really, really fascinating character. Amazing. And he talks a lot about loving everything in life. And what it brought home to me was that I loved my partner so much that I loved all of him much more than I loved me. You know what I mean? I loved all of him. So he was a huge part of love in my life. And people say to you, you know, oh, you'll get over him. You know, you need to stop thinking about him. Or he's horrible or whatever like that. But he's not horrible to me. I still love him. I can't help it. I always will. But what I learned from Ram Dass is that if you learn to love everything in your life, so you love the sky, you love the beauty outside, you love the people that you know, you love the cat down the street, you love all the things that are around you, then the love you have for him is a smaller part of that love instead of an all-consuming huge love. And that, I think, is what I've really learned, is that I love everything now. And that may, may sound crazy, but when you stay in this place of love, instead of thinking, you know, 
about anger and jealousy and bitterness and things like that, if you think to yourself, well, what would happen if that was love instead? It really, really helps you. And that love that I have for him will always be there, but it's a much smaller part of my life. So it's not as all-consuming. And that's how I would, what I would say to people is try to sit back and just look at what else you can love in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true. Love comes in so many different shades. I had written an article, a Valentine's article, about how I was single. And yet between my children and my girlfriends and my church community and my siblings, and I was like, I've never felt so loved in my life because it's so multidimensional. But when we hone in on one person and that's love and everything else pales in comparison, um, that's a dangerous, out of balance way of uh, being even if yeah. it's a healthy well, relationship one thing, I would, one thing I would just say on that is that's so true because in this last 18 months I have revisited so many friends that I had my connections were broken with just very sporadic and found so many new friends and I do you know honest, I just don't have time for anybody else right now because I've got so many great friends do you know what I mean and it's just wonderful and it's not just me and him anymore it's me and all these people and all these different aspects that they bring into my life which makes my life so much more magical I'm not bored anymore I spent all my life looking for purpose all the time not all my life all my life with my partner looking for purpose all the time and looking for something I think it was me that needed more all the time I am never bored at all now there's always somebody who wants to do something with me and we have all these new experiences and it's amazing, absolutely amazing. And if you told me about 18 months ago, I'd have said, I don't have any friends, I'm on my own, I'm all alone. And that's how I would have felt. Now, it, I am, couldn't be further from that. I am so abundantly filled with love of people around me. And I think that's just magical, wonderful. Thank you. I love you, Annabelle. Thank you so much <laughs> for coming you. on and sharing. This has, been, this has been great. I know it's going to encourage a lot of people. Oh, I hope so, because thank you, Karen. You're the best. I couldn't thank you enough. And please stay tuned for our next episode of Voices of Celebration. We'll be talking to you soon. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.